everyone. This is Alicia Halliday, and this is the ASF Weekly Science Podcast. Welcome, everyone. This week, we have a special treat. We have a guest, Dr. Robert Conacher, who was at Rutgers University studying neural precursor cells in different autism groups. So we talk about how there are different forms of autism. There are also different genetic etiologies of autism. One is rare genetic syndromes, and another is different genetic mechanisms that may not have a single gene or the interaction of gene environment interaction where there's not a single gene um, and that there's the, it may not show up on regular gene scans. So it's, he looked at this from a kind of a 20,000 foot perspective from a common biological pers uh, a common biological mechanism, which is cell proliferation and mitogenesis. And I'm gonna let him explain, but the first thing I want him to do is be able to introduce himself Dr. Conacher, please go ahead. Thank you very much, Alicia. It's it's great to be here. Um, as he, as he said, I um, you know I did my PhD with Manny DeChico Bloom over at Rutgers, and this is uh, a great piece of research that we were able to complete, studying different cohorts of uh, autism um, patients. And so we basically were able to take their cells and reprogram them into. NPCs and then find some interesting differences and similarities. That is a great introduction to my first question. Many people on this listening to this podcast may not even know what an NPC is. So would you mind describing what you mean by an NPC and an IPSC and just briefly how you you made them in the lab? Sure. Uh, so I, uh, let me start with IPSC. So all of the uh, studies that we're talking about here are dealing with IPSCs, and that stands for induced pluripotent stem cells. And you can kind of break it down by what it means in the name. So induced is effectively where you're taking somebody's mature skin or blood cells, and you're reprogramming them into an earlier embryonic state. So it's basically what we first do is we get patients that um, donate their skin or their blood and we induce them back into this embryonic state. And pluripotent, it means that the cells that were converted to this embryonic state can become practically any different, any type of cell in the body. So they're pluripotent. They can differentiate into multiple cell types. And their stem cells, which you and I are, are pretty familiar with, it's a, it's a hot topic, uh, you know, stem cells are what we all start out as, and it helps us bring rise to all the different organs and structures in our body. And so we basically have this technology from um, something that was discovered back a while ago, uh, where you can use a couple transcription factors, and these can reprogram these somatic blood or skin cells into these uh, embryonic state. And NPCs are a slightly more differentiated form of an IPSC. So when you have this IPSC, you encourage it to become a neural precursor cell. So that's what an NPC stands for, or a neural progenitor cell. And so these are cells that can give rise to all of the brain cells in your body. So I want people to just kind of sit there and digest that, that you can take a cell in your body now and turn it into a brain cell or a neural progenitor cell. So um, that's pretty amazing. So you can take a skin cell and turn it into a neuron. So 
is that kind of what's going on or am I oversimplifying? Yeah, no, you, you hit the nail on the head. It's, it's a really amazing technology because, you know, if you want to study what's going on in early brain development, we don't really have a good way of doing that. We've used animals and we've used other types of models, but this is a way to use the genetic makeup of yourself and we can effectively turn back time and study what those cells may have been doing when you were a fetus. And this is a great way for us to use human cells as a model organism or a model system rather. Great. So what happens um, once they turn into a neuron? So it, 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 you're looking at it, it's a neuron. What does it do? What, what does proliferation mean? So that's a, that's a great uh, set of questions. I want to actually give you a little bit of history of developmental biology, and maybe this will help frame it. So every single cell before it turns into its final form, if you will, uh, it will proliferate, it will divide, and it will give rise to more cells. And these cells, depending on how embryonic they are, they can give rise to many different cell types, or they will give rise to maybe just uh, a neuron. And so iPSCs and NPCs will continue to divide and create a pool of cells that will give rise to your brain or other organs. And so the NPCs are the ones that we're studying and they're right before a cell turns into a neuron. And so there's a lot of researchers that actually study the neuron, which is the more differentiated form of an NPC. And that's when you, you think about your brain where you have a synapse and, and they grow out and they connect to the other cells and they, they talk to each other effectively so you can think. But an NPC is a, an immature form of a neuron. They're not, they haven't made it there yet. They're still a cell that is dividing and it can kind of migrate to where it's supposed to be in the brain. And it will shoot out little immature processes that will help it kind of crawl to where it would, would need to be. And so if you're looking at this in a dish, uh, these cells are expressing certain proteins. They are still trying to figure out what they want to be effectively like a kid. And they are, um, they have certain properties that are different from a cell that is fully formed into a neuron. Does that make sense? That makes sense. That makes sense. And so we're, this is an autism podcast. So describe why proliferation is important um, when you think about autism spectrum disorder. Sure. So in autism spectrum disorders, there are a lot of different things going on. A lot of different types of autism can be, uh, you know, it's a spectrum, right? Uh, but one thing that has come out in research is that a subpopulation, about 20% or so of individuals with autism shortly after birth have enlarged heads known as macrocephaly. So if you were to measure the circumference of a, of a, a baby's head right, right after birth, it would be significantly larger than that of a, a, a regular average child's head. And so I could ask you, you know, what do you think causes this? How could you explain for an enlarged head? What is going on beneath the skin surface? And well, one of the things that could happen is that you actually may have more cells that, uh, that causes a, a larger brain and a larger skull and a, more, a bigger head. There are a, a whole lot of different other ways that that could happen, but proliferation is probably one of the cornerstones of how this could happen. So our lab is very interested in understanding how proliferation can be associated 
with autism and whether or not we can identify how proliferation is uh, altered in, in autism. And we just talked about how you just mentioned enlarged head size. Not everyone with autism has an enlarged head size. And we also talked about how there are different causes of autism. So some we know are genetic, but we don't know the gene. Some we know the gene, um, they're highly related. So you tell me about the groups that you've studied in your, in your project and um, the, the different causes of autism and why you chose them. Sure. In this case, what we were able to do is we were able to get a hold of samples from two different populations of autism. So there are these idiopathic uh, autism patients, and idiopathic means it's undefined. You don't really know, as you were saying, the genetic underlying cause that gave rise to the autism of those boys. And then there are a couple that were genetically uh, identified as a um, 16p11.2 chromosomal deletion, which is known to give rise to autism. So in those, we have effectively a group of kids that had autism and we don't really know how they got it. And then we, we have two kids where we knew that they have this specific deletion and that genetic deletion gave rise to their autism. And so by reprogramming these cells from these different children, we were able to make a comparison between a known form of autism to an unknown form of autism. And so you can see, you could ask, are they going to behave the same way? Are they going to behave differently? If they behave similarly or not, what does that mean? And how could we um, compare and contrast their cellular biology? Additionally, we uh, were able to look at their head circumference. And we also have some other information about their cognitive uh, scores, so we can try to have a better understanding of what kind of severity their autism may be. And so all of this uh, plays into our, our background of the, the population, and we also have control uh, cell populations built in. So you already mentioned, or we already talked about how there are different forms of autism. There are some that are genetically defined and some that we know may be involved genetically, but we don't have a gene. Um, you picked out or you studied three groups in this project. So can you describe those three groups um, and the differences between them? Thank you. So what was really cool about this study is that we were able to get a hold of idiopathic autism patients, as well as ge genetically defined form of autism, the 16P11.2 copy number variant deletion. So as you said, for the 16P individuals, we know that this deletion in their gene segment gave rise to their autism. And we were able to compare those NPCs to some control individuals that we were able to obtain from the NIH. So those NPCs don't have this genetic deletion. And that would be a way for us to compare to the genetic deletion that the 16P individuals have. The other group that we have are the idiopathic cohort. And so these boys, uh, which have autism, are being compared to age and sex matched siblings from their own families, where we were able to reprogram those cells from individuals that don't have autism. So you can look at within a family of idiopathic autism to the genetic makeup of the brother 
that doesn't have autism and understand if there's any differences within that family. And so what we were able to do here is uh, there's a lot of clinical data that we collected on the patients. So we understand their, their age when we collect the cells. We understand actually the head circumference of them, the, the children when they were, uh, we also understand the head circumference of the children so we can understand if they were macrocephalic. We also have some cognitive scoring and um, other types of uh, assessments of their IQ to better understand the severity of the patients. And all of this allows us to have a better, more rich in, uh, picture of our NPCs populations. Right. You looked at um, proliferation, which is your main outcome, and then you looked at some other outcomes as well. So let's start with proliferation. What did you find and how was head circumference related? Sure. So by looking at proliferation of all these NPCs, we actually found out that it didn't matter whether or not they were idiopathic or the 16P NPCs they all had a dysregulation of proliferation, meaning all of the autistic cells had a defect in proliferation, whether it be that they have too much proliferation or not enough proliferation, they all had an issue, which is uh, an interesting finding that kind of shows a similarity uh, across multiple types of autism. Now, one thing that we also looked at like you said, was um, the head circumference. And we noticed that those individuals that had macrocephalic heads, the enlarged heads, those individuals had NPCs that were proliferating more, which would would, could, which supports an hypothesis I mentioned earlier about having more cells that could make up this larger brain. Now, uh, those that we didn't have that data or that they were normal in their head circumference, they actually didn't have that hyperproliferation. They had a reduction in the other direction. So it's interesting that you could see similarities and differences, but uh, you also have it related to their head size. So you just nailed it on the head. You had similarities in proliferation, but sometimes they didn't always go the same way across yep. individuals with autism. So that's interesting. Um, so what else did you look at besides proliferation? Because there were some other interesting things besides just proliferation. Yeah, sure. So we, we did look at a couple of different metrics just to make sure, I should say first about the proliferation is that we wanted to make sure that we, we were thorough here. So we looked at the opposite of proliferation, which is cell death to make sure that indeed it wasn't a, a dying phenotype. And it, in fact, it was more of a actual proliferation in, in terms of cell numbers and the markings that we were able to measure that the number of uh, cells increasing DNA synthesis, they were in, enhanced. And so once we understood that there was an increase or a decrease in proliferation, we also looked at the signaling pathways that were relevant. And we did this in a couple of different ways. So by measuring protein by a technique called Western blot, we were able to examine a signaling um, pathway called uh, the ERK pathway, which is actually known to be affected within the 16P individuals because within that copy number variant deletion, 
one of the genes that, that drives the ERK signaling is actually within that region. So we knew that there was going to be something going on in the 16P individuals. So we wanted to examine the, uh, the ERK levels across all of the patients. And we actually were seeing that it also was uh, impacted in two out of the three idiopathic individuals in terms of the phosphorylated versus unphosphorylated ERK. We, um, we additionally looked at uh, gene expression of a bunch of different genes uh, that are characterized in uh, neural precursor cells. And we were able to make some comparisons and contrast between what we were seeing in differences in the control versus uh, idiopathic or the control and the 16P individuals. And um, so th those were a couple of the things that we were able to look at. And then I guess one thing, if I may go back to proliferation for a minute, uh, we also used a, um, a growth factor to challenge ourselves to see whether or not uh, that would maybe more magnify the defects that we were seeing because um, we treated cells with a, uh, a growth factor called uh, brain derived, I mean, we treated cells with a growth factor called uh, BFGF, the fibroblast growth factor. And this is actually a growth factor known to stimulate the ERK pathway. And so we actually were finding that there was a more magnified uh, defect in the direction of proliferation defect, depending on whether it was hyper or hypo proliferative uh, NPCs. You have autism, you know, kind of as a as an overlapping term or an overarching term, but then you have subgroups within it. What does this kind of say about the neurobiological features of, of autism that they can be similar but then diverge? I think that what it what it tells us is that there are a couple of building blocks that we need to use in order to build a brain. And when things go wrong and give rise to something like autism, uh, there are many different paths to getting there. But because we have certain building blocks that may be affected across all of autistic individuals, we have maybe a starting point or something that we can use to compare and contrast these individuals. And, and it's, um, it kind of sh shows that despite it being a heterogeneous disorder, we're still able to pull apart something that is shared across all individuals, or at least a large percentage of them. What, what's your perspective on, on how to use this, these findings for the next generation of research? Yeah, no, I, um, I actually really like where you're going with that. I think it is a untapped area that we could learn a lot more about autism when we compare and contrast different groups of um, autistic individuals. So being able to find shared or divergent phenotypes across different populations will help us better understand what are the different paths to giving rise to autism? And I should say that, you know, we have a lot of um, specific genetic defects that can give rise to autism, but those are actually a very small percentage of all the autistic individuals that we have in our population. I think that the large majority of autistic individuals are idiopathic or undefined. So we actually don't know the large majority what 
what are the combination of genetic and or environmental factors that are giving rise to this in these people. So being able to compare and contrast, we can better understand what is going on in, in these idiopathic patients and whether or not there are more subgroups or not, we can explore that further. And I would also say that one of the other really interesting findings of the paper that we were able to look at was we, we primarily studied NPCs, right? But prior to an NPC is an IPSC, which is even more pluripotent and less differentiated, more embryonic. And we actually were able to see that the 16P IPSCs also had a proliferation defect where they were proliferating more, whereas the idiopathic IPSCs were not. And so this is really interesting because there was a known genetic region in the 16P that was affected, and it seemed to impact not just the NPCs, but also these earlier cell types, suggesting that this proliferative de defect could affect multiple different types of cells in your body. And this may also suggest that we want to look at this IPSC and NPC population in other uh, ASD populations to understand if this is happening across others. And so being able to look earlier in early developmental processes like proliferation, migration, and early neurite outgrowth of these NPCs and the behavior of uh, progenitor cells is, is, I think, really important. Thank you. I know there's um, dozens and dozens of different patient advocacy groups with known genetic syndromes associated with autism that would be very willing to share their skin cells with you to find out if they're what type of proliferation they uh, they're they're part of. But I, this is a great start. Maybe that's maybe that's a, a, the next study is to look at how these different genes affect proliferation across the spectrum. But Thank you so much. This was very, very helpful. I really appreciate your time. And uh, I will post a link to the study in the podcast summary. So thank you, Dr. Conacher. Is there anything else you want to share or anything else you want to say that I missed or that I missed about the study or didn't include? Thank you so much for, for uh, having me on the show. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about the work. Um, I, I would just uh, encourage you to take a look at the, the paper. I'm more than happy to answer any more questions if anyone has any. And I, I guess, um, you know, it's hard to capture it all in, in, a, in a podcast, but I'm, I'm happy to talk more if you'd like. Yes, thank you. I know I, I know we glossed over some important details, but- um, Oh, no, no, no. I just, keep this keep this top level. No, I, I think it's great. And I think really, you know, as we find similarities in different um, forms of autism, it's, it's scratching the surface in how we can better understand ASD. And the more we know about it, the, the better we can possibly come up with therapies or treatments to enrich the lives of those with ASD. And so just happy to be here and be a part of it. Full of paranoia